0: Here we go again. So anybody near you, you have not yet, uh, by now we must have exhausted that one, huh? Oh, there are a few. I think of this as compulsive friendliness training. (laughs) About this? I
1: don't
0: know. Okay, well, as long as this is up, I made mention of this, but now you can see it in the uh, translated original. This is that whole notion of spending our time speculating on matters that don't actually get us free. As if a man were wounded with a poisoned arrow and a surgeon offers to remove it, but he says, Up, nope, not so fast. I want to know whether the man who wounded me was a noble warrior or a priest a merchant or a worker, and not until I know his name, his height, his complexion, his hometown, what kind of bow he used, what the string was made of, and so on, right? So, you know, um, it's an interesting question. When we begin to wonder about those matters, is it useful or is it useless? You know, the Buddha was pretty clear about this when it comes to matters of really liberating ourselves. And yet, you know, in our conventional way of thinking, we do often want to understand, you know, Something more about why we're suffering, and there's there's benefit to this. But um, let me start with a question for you, and, and this is a sincere question because it it really comes out of my own wonderings for myself. I've been doing this a long time, and I often wonder for myself, what good is it, you know? And it's a funny question because. It has not delivered what I expected, as I mentioned, and yet I am utterly convinced that I will continue to practice until uh, until I can no longer practice. And in fact, this accords with something else that I had heard, which was I had heard from my thesis advisor's wife, oddly. I don't quite know why. This was many years ago, and she had occasion to interview a bunch of monks in Maine and uh, told me about it. She said she was asking them what benefit they had received from um, their meditation practices. And she said that the general answer that she got was they couldn't really say. <laughs> that they weren't sure if the changes that they had experienced over the course of their meditation careers were um, due to the passage of time, maturation, and general growth of their meditation practice. Right? It was interesting. They weren't extolling you know, the, the value of meditation. And yet to an individual, they were committed to it in a lifelong way. And so there's something that I think happens over the course of one's meditation career, which is that if things are going well, our motivations begin to change. We begin with our secret practice or with our overt wishes for what we're going to get or what we're going to get rid of, and that maybe we begin to see how that very motivation is itself a hindrance, the need for us to be different. And so the practice of meditation in some respects becomes the very practice of simple acceptance. You know, We can talk about self-acceptance as if one could wave a wand and say, I shall now henceforth, I shall accept myself just as I am. And of course, that's, that's foolish. It, it doesn't happen this way. But I think when we're practicing meditation, what is present, coming back to it, And opening to it, not because it is to our liking, but because it is the truth of the moment. I think this is actually the practice of self-acceptance, again and again and again. And in this respect, we begin to give up on the idea that we need to be different from how we are, which opens the possibility for us to change, because it's no longer motivated by some kind of aversion. Some need to be rid of something. So motivations change over time. Um, I remember speaking with my, my friend Jack Engler um, about his practice. I asked him, you know, periodically I was very interested, because he was a pretty committed fellow. And he said that um, it really struck me he said he didn't practice to get anything anymore. I said, "So why do you do it?" He said, "I just want to see what's there."
2: Right?
0: So maybe we sit just to make contact with ourselves and we see what's there. So, if anybody's willing to share, I am really curious to know what good is it? You know What have you actually noticed in your lives and in your experience? Has it spoken to the matter of suffering? Do you suffer less?
2: You know? Yeah.
3: Um, so I feel like everybody I've talked to has thus far has been meditating for a long time. I took it for a variety of reasons, and, uh, and one of them was that I had, uh, you know, deep-seated issues from childhood that I had managed my whole life, but never faced and really tried to understand and, and you know, and, and address in a meaningful way. Uh, meditation has radically changed my life. It uh, has allowed me to do that. Of course, it's, it's not a panacea but it has uh, allowed me to forgive myself in a way that I had not been able to do for 45 years. It has uh, allowed me to change condition responses that my wife and I have had for 35 years. It has ha- allowed me to be a better friend. It has allowed me to uh, recognize when I get into moments of self loathing which I still will, recognize them for what they are, I can communicate to my wife what is happening, because I know what's happening <laughs> for starters. Uh, so she can be more patient with me and I can be more patient with myself. You know, there's always that, that uh that down spiral of i would get angry and I would get angry at myself for getting angry and then I would get angry at myself for getting angry for getting angry, right? And and, and that and this has allowed me to accept that that is Something that you know I'm going through and and So for me, I, I come from a little unusual place. I think from step because you said it may be hard if you've been doing it for thirty years, and you've grown over that thirty years. But for me, it's been very concentrated. But now I'm in a, I think a blocking and tackling stage, right? Where I really did get amazing results because I guess I was ready for them. Um, and now I am like, okay, what else? What else is there? And that's gonna that's. This, as many people here know, this is my first retreat, so this is um, starting on that journey. Mm. Mm.
0: That's beautiful.
1: Yeah. Thank,
3: Thank you. you. Well, I wasn't planning on talking at
0: all. <laughs> <laughs> so you've never done like a full-on silent retreat?
3: No, I once set up a day and I'm terrified. <laughs> I think yeah. I figured
0: I'd ease into it with That's quite wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. My wife has said to me I don't know why you bother with this it hasn't helped you any
1: <laughs>
0: And and to which I say you know it would have been worse mm Imagine you were able to offer something to your son. Yeah,
4: I, exactly. I was there, and then my other kids came over, and we held them all together. And that's something.
0: Yeah, that's, a really good that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, you yeah. know, we can talk about the fruits of this practice in abstract terms, but you know, in life, it has infinite flavors.
3: Yeah, Amy. Except so for me, it's a special group because <laughs> <laughs> I've had experiences that are. Uh, I mean,
1: that, that meditation uh, changed something,
0: so something for, for that. I'm just being. Oh, okay. Thanks for <Yeah>. the cue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Amy? You know, this isn't about personality change, but personalities sometimes do change, you know? For some people, maybe there's a little bit of muting that occurs as some, something more flamboyant or urgent or hungry gets a bit attenuated. Uh, but for some people, it's as though the inhibition begins to drop away and we can fully occupy who we are in a natural way, and, and people become more themselves and more present and available. You know? None of that is particularly predictable. And Martin?
5: and I would always say to her, you better not die first, because I don't want to be left with Dad because he's so difficult. <laughs> and he's like uber difficult. And I just, and now I talk to him like twice a day and you know, we, I would say we have an amazing relationship, but I, he's my practice. It's my practice. Like without practice, we just wouldn't have what we have. And And I think it is a little bit about personality change and forgiveness and, you know, uh, taking it on the road in a way that therapy just didn't do. Didn't, couldn't, and even as a therapist, I feel like the work that I do with clients has so changed. I I don't even know what I did before meditation with clients. You know, it just, I don't know. it's, It's really profound in so many ways. Yeah. And hard to to say what it really is, but in, in, I do also think that the becoming a nice person, like I mean, you know, I like say hi to people all the time. I'm not as shy. You know, my friends are like, "Who are you? What happened to you?" You know, like there's definitely something that changes. You know, there's some kind of I guess acceptance uh, is the closest thing, but this, but compassion in a way that is tangible,
0: think. Mm. Yeah, by the way, I'm completely convinced that um, this kind of practice should be obligatory training for therapists, mm. yeah. honestly. Anything else anybody wants to share on this? Yeah, Jan. Um, um, I appreciate
2: hearing the
6: sharing. So I don't really remember who I was before that. And um, so I think about what is, how it is, so it's hard for me to figure out how, how it has affected me. And the, and, but there's this resonance of freedom is the word that comes to mind, is a freedom from, like I'm still totally myself, I'm still totally part of my family, part of my heredity, like that's all still there but there's an awareness of it. There's less of a stickiness to it. I don't have to be it. Um, sometimes I do have to be it. <laughs> um, so there's a sense of freedom from, say, trajectories. This is what I'm guessing, right? Because I'm, I'm trying to understand its effects without knowing, without remembering the other. Um, but this freedom from trajectories, whether they're Biological, or or hereditary, or time—you know—age-appropriate trajectories, or, or some such. And then I think about—you spoke about—you um, know—why do we do this? And and I my practice has come through different um, metamorphoses, and it is currently more Buddhist than it has been, or as it started. And in one of my studies, it spoke about that Part of the reason we meditate is so that we don't have to come back, right? That we have less incarnations, something like that. And I thought, well, I really like life. I want to come back. (laughs) And I contemplated, should I stop meditating? No, I want to stop meditating. (laughs)
0: Yeah, Yeah, you know, the early Buddhist view is... Of the world is that it is basically a suffering place populated by deluded individuals, and that one could not do better than to get the heck out. <laughs> Which is, I think, a little bit sad and depressing. Um, you know, the my feeling was I'm not that interested in getting out because this is pretty interesting. I actually really like being alive, you know. And I think part of that, for me anyway, is a consequence of practice. You know, that it becomes endlessly interesting rather than some project. I don't know. I want to mention something about equanimity because of what you had said about your dog. I told somebody this story today. You know, there's the stupa outside. And uh, the first time we had the course that I had mentioned, we were in this classroom um, sitting Andy Olenski, was teaching and we heard this thunderous sound and we turned just in time to watch the stupa collapse wow. just completely come apart and it was really startling and everybody was kind of stunned for a moment and then we we went andy went back to teaching and one of the women in the group said wait a minute you you can't keep going this thing happened we we need to address it we need to process it and now Andy had designed that particular stupa and he said it was so interesting he said nobody here has more investment in that thing than I do but it's already fallen mm-hmm. yeah. you know we could process it and it wasn't going to re- wasn't going to resurrect it I-, I thought that was just remarkable from one perspective completely unsatisfactory but from another it's like What's next?
2: Yeah,
0: Martin?
3: Yeah.
0: Well, so here's what I think. I think people's progress, whatever, however we understand that, um, differs between individuals. Uh, there are really inspiring stories that, um, about people like Deepama. I don't know if you've, you've, you've read about her, who was uh, from the Deccan, um, and had a really dreadful life and had put off her meditation career until relatively late in life and then made extraordinary progress. And I love these stories, although they they just fill me with envy,
1: (laughs) you know. Um,
0: I think there are many people for whom the earliest experience is the most transformative. I know the first time I actually did an intensive, I guess it was a 10-day Vipassana retreat, I was floating on air. It's like this practice that I'd been doing at that point for 15 years and seemed arid suddenly came alive to me, and I thought, oh my, you know,
3: this is it. Mm
0: -hmm. And of course, after that, it's like it it levels off and I, wait a minute, I want prizes. And it um, becomes a problem when we are looking as I did for prizes, you know, working really hard to get something, uh, which was nothing but a torment. I mean, I did actually leave at least one retreat in tears because I was gonna work so hard. I was gonna give it everything, you know, stayed up late at night, practicing hard, because I wanted a prize and it was um, it was torment, absolute torment. And I remember the teacher, I had a a meeting with the teacher who said, are you prepared to leave here with nothing? And my answer was no, no. So sometimes the gains are really quick. Sometimes it's really slow. I mean, I've I've spoken to people for whom in their practice they just settled into silence very quickly, and it was always a peaceful business. For others, it's tumultuous, you know? Which makes sense, because this path, even though it seems to be laid out in a kind of a systematic and predictable way, really what this is, is is a tool for us to investigate our own lives. So there's no reason why this should look like anybody else's experience, because what we're doing is investigating this life, which is utterly unique. It's going to unfold differently. I suspect that for some people for whom the benefits come slowly, they quit first. You know, we're expecting an immediate, an immediate reward. For others, the first five minutes that they sit can seem like a revelation. The first time they've ever turned their attention inward and a world opens up. Any, anybody else want to share anything about their experience? So, you know, um, there's some circles that who would say we don't it's not um, savory to talk about our practice or or the benefits. But then there are others, myself included at this moment, who actually think it's kind of useful for us to take note, you know, um, to actually consider what benefit there has been. you know, we can give so much emphasis uh, to being attentive to moments of suffering. But, of course, that's not the whole story in moments of sukha or of happiness or ease to be attentive to that as well right to actually notice this is a moment of no suffering this is a moment where there are none of the, um, none of the defilements have arisen and to be able to actually enjoy the quality of mind when none of these uh, defilements are present you know is very reinforcing you know so I had yeah
3: Paige
7: I was just thinking when you're saying that like it's interesting when you think about different practices and how it's very like an echo chamber right if it's and even us sharing our experiences is an interesting um, aspect of you know thinking about you know how the sangha is an important aspect of our internal practices and how it changes how we experience our own practice you know and i think um i don't know it just was interesting when because i was thinking about when you were talking about zen practice and how it feels like you're in a Zen box or like in an echo chamber and there isn't any talking, there isn't any moving. And it's very individual and how different being in a Sangha and talking about the benefits, like that that changes the experience in some mm-hmm. ways, you know? Yeah,
0: and the challenges, you know, to hear other people's challenges
7: yeah, exactly. is, is really useful. Exactly, and the, the other thing I also wondered about too, and you talked about this a little bit, Is there a trajectory of uh, healthy disillusionment that happens in everyone's, is there like a developmental process for people who have been meditating this long too, that there's a moment of disillusionment, healthy disillusionment, I don't know, we'll just call it healthy disillusionment where you realize that without (coughs) fruition, this practice is, it is is helps in some ways, you know, it's like a different, you know, instead of like chasing after the experience, like you talk about, I wonder yeah. if, if you have to come to a place of like that healthy disillusionment where it's just what it is, you know? Yeah. yeah.
0: You know, I don't know. I know there's certainly those traditions that talk about a point in practice where one encounters what in the Christian tradition is the dark night of the soul, people who really come up against some major crisis, which is sometimes the gateway to, to real awakening. Um, certainly for many people, they will report there are periods that are dry. And that can go on for years, you know? And nobody likes that, because we want some reinforcement and sense that it's of some use. And this is the point that many people quit. But in fact, when we quit, one of the things that we've done is we've turned away from the truth of that arid experience rather than actually finding that there is um, a particular quality of life to be found even in our despair, you know, about practice. Um, you know, I mentioned that I had always wanted, um, wanted the big prize, right from the beginning. My plan was when I got out of college, I would ordain or go into a um, retreat center for a year, get enlightened, and then go to graduate school. You know? Uh, it didn't go that way i fell in with a woman who was my first wife Uh, she's still my wife actually but (laughs) she it's not fault anyway um, and so i always thought that you know there was going to be some beautiful again some explosion of perfection and you know in a way so i think my you know, the time's running out, if whatever that is hasn't happened, I'm pretty sure I don't have to worry about that coming now, so it's actually been kind of liberating, uh, because now I, I don't have to worry about being so um, obsessively impeccable, I can just kind of relax into my imperfections without making a big project of it, and that's a kind of a huge relief, you know, and I'm reading more about what enlightenment is, what awakening is. And, and one of my favorite writers on this topic is um, Joko Beck. You know, who's an American Zen teacher. And she has such a, a sober and kind of hard-assed way of describing. You know, she really talks about giving up hope. You know, she says that we're constantly looking for the handout, or for the person who's going to give us the helping hand and save us. And there's nothing that's going to save us. And in fact, even the practice, she says, is not going to save us, you know? And there has to be a kind of a, a mourning associated with it because it's not about our fantasies, you know? So for instance, actually, I'm going to read you a little passage, which I just really love, from her. She, um, there are several books of her her um, Dharma talks, I think. And in this one, she's talking about enlightenment. And she said that I'm going to ask you a series of questions about certain unpleasant states. I'm not not saying not to try to prevent these states or not change them. And I'm not saying we should not have strong feelings or preferences about them. But these examples can begin to give a clue. And when we have a clue, we can see more clearly what we're doing in practice. So here are the questions. If I am told, Joko, you have... One more day to live, is that okay with you? Or if someone told you that, is it okay with you? If I'm in a severe accident and my legs and arms have been amputated, is this okay with me? If it happened to you, would it be okay? If I were never again to receive a kind word or friendly encouraging word from anyone, is this okay? If I, for whatever reason, have to be bedridden and in pain for the rest of my life, is this okay with me? You know, she continues, these are like really dreadful things. If I have to live my life as a beggar, if I must lose whatever and whomever I care for, is it okay? You know, and she says, now I can't answer okay to any of those. And if you're honest, I don't think you can either. But to answer okay is the enlightened state. If we understand what it means for something to be okay. For something to be okay, it doesn't mean that I don't scream or cry or protest or hate it. Singing and dancing are the voice of the Dharma, and screaming and moaning are also the voice of the Dharma. Right? For these things to be okay for me doesn't mean that I'm happy about them. If they're okay, what does that mean? What is the enlightened state? And she says, it's when there is no longer any separation between me and the circumstances of my life. Whatever they may be, it is what it is. So this is so interesting. The voice of the Dharma might be our authentic misery. And it puts into perspective something that um, the conversation I had with a teacher on a Zen Sashin, I was miserable. I was really miserable. And I, and I just wanted relief from my misery. And, uh, and I had Dokusan, you know, the kind of individual meeting in the course of the retreat, and I was spilling all of this out. And he was kind of smiling and even approving, and it pissed me off you know it's like don't you hear me you know what is it why don't you get what i'm going through and i and i don't remember precisely what he said but it it took me years to begin to understand why he was kind of smiling and even approving and i think he was approving because i was all in right i was in a messed up state but boy there was nothing left out you know, so it was truly wholehearted sadly it was wholehearted misery at the time and I couldn't see that there was anything about that that was beneficial right? so this is pointing to a, a, a different idea about what awakening is it's not some kind of fantasied world in which there's no suffering it's, it's the freedom to suffer it is the freedom to suffer without separation right? acceptance deep acceptance hymn yeah. Not fighting the circumstances of our lives. I asked, um, I asked him what he, the same teacher. I said, "What do you do when you have enormous pain?" And he said, "I invite more of it." And I thought, well, that is screwed up.
1: <laughs>
0: and you know, I don't think he's actually getting more of it for having invited it. But it is a deliberate, attitudinal statement, right? That I'm not going to fight this. I'm going to say, "Bring it." Bring it, whatever it looks like. Right, this wholeheartedness. Anything anybody else wishes to to share in this? Okay. Well, I warned you. Now I'm going to just begin the, um, you know, the blah 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 again. Um. Actually, you know what? I'm going to do one other thing. I'm going to read you this because I like it. So if you can sit quietly with difficult news, if in financial downturns you remain perfectly calm, If you can see your neighbors travel to fantastic places without a twinge of jealousy, if you can happily eat whatever is put on your plate and fall asleep after a day of running around without a drink or a pill, if you always find contentment just where you are, you're probably a dog. Yeah, so I used to share an office with Chris Germer, and he left that on my desk one day uh, long ago um, okay, so back to the the Buddhist stuff um, after this conversation, this seems a little bit dry, but um, the experiment requires that we continue so I, I don't have a slide on this, but um, there are in the Buddhist lore there are uh, regarded, there are three types of suffering. Now uh, the first is called, uh, here we go. When I was, When I was in graduate school, my mother asked me if they had courses in penmanship. (laughs) Uh, The second is, and about this,
2: I'm kind of
0: run out of ink here. So Dukkha Dukkha, Sankara Dukkha, and Vipaparanama Dukkha. And um, I'm raising this because um, I want help understanding it. I've read about these things on many occasions and it remains a little bit unclear to me, but I'll tell you what I think I understand. The Dukkha Dukkha, one level of suffering is, it's the suffering of suffering hence dukkha dukkha, and generally this is regarded as not getting what one wants, old age, sickness, death, lack of sleep, depression, mental illness, um, pain, loss, frustration, say even with injustice, separation from loved ones, unpleasant conditions. So the implication is here is that it is um, not just these matters, but it's our aversion to them that gives rise to suffering. But the pain in Dukkha Dukkha is inherently unpleasant. You know, if you stub your toe, it is unpleasant and it's going to be painful. It doesn't really reside strictly in our aversion to it. It's just intrinsically all of these things, you know, loss, sickness, and so on. And it can be both physical and emotional. Um, the second level, Sankhara Dukkha, is um, understood to mean the suffering that is associated with impermanence. Meaning that maybe you get what you want, but then it slips away. Right? Maybe not immediately, and maybe eventually. Really, no matter how fortunate you are. Right? So ways of understanding this are, say, the simple disappearance of happiness when happiness is present, that there's really no place that we can sit for very long to enjoy it without the fear that it's going to slip away. right? So even in the moment of something very pleasant, very often there's this kind of nagging thing in the, in the background which says, I want this to last forever because of the knowledge that it won't. And so even our best moments can be tinged with this kind of understanding. Sankara dukkha can be seen in our anxiety about the future uh, and is sometimes associated with formations. I've translated sankara as formations. That is to say um, how we think things should be or our judgments about the fact that they are not the way that we think they should be. You know, it's the voice that maybe says it's not fair. Um, the root here, which gives rise to suffering and dukkha is also craving, you know, <coughs> craving for it to be otherwise. That's the common denominator. And because impermanence is the law of nature and it cannot be changed, uh, putting any hope of relief on it, it, what does this say? Okay, forget that. But one of the commentators did make the comment that without permanence, if everything was static, there would be no hope of any kind of liberation. And in this respect, the very thing that becomes the cause of our suffering is also the cause for some kind of hope because of the possibility of change. So the third, uh, Viparanama, Dukkha, is, um, this is the one that I find most confusing. It's often described uh, in terms that things suffer or that all things are tinged by suffering is kind of all pervasive uh, due to the condition nature of phenomena so it's the underlying anxiety about things that even in good moments it's subject to change due to the absence of any solid ground that this is sometimes conscious and sometimes it's unconscious it might be that kind of nagging background uh, restlessness It's tied to the gap between reality and our human approach to it, uh, to try to possess and to own things, which is fundamentally impossible. Uh, It's in the nature of reality, that is to say, into the reality of our experience, which don't conform to our wishes. And how little really does truly conform to our wishes for very long. Uh, It's likened more to... um, being akin to existential angst. And it's not just a response to unpleasant experience, but also to pleasant experience, because there is that craving for it to continue. Because nothing that is impermanent can ultimately be satisfactory. It's associated with a state created by a false sense of self. And I wonder if this is particularly a subtle form of suffering that is gradually only revealed with continued practice. And indeed, maybe is only fully understood with deeper stages of concentration and of understanding. But at this stage, it is said the suffering is no longer seen as coming from the outside, but from unwanted conditions, but rather from one's own self-created conditions. So I'm a bit fuzzy. Now, if we understand this as just the crap that happens to us, that's easily understood. But the thing that gives rise to suffering in each of these is that restless movement of mind that says, not like this. It should be different.
1: Right?
0: So we have bad circumstances. We've got basic um, instability of all of our opinions and our formations right, that are fundamentally un- un- unreliable because they're subject to change. And then this, which is that things suffer that there is no, um, there's no safety to be found in, in any phenomena whatsoever. So I, it, it's also, I read, and I've read a lot of contradictory things here, which leads to my confusion. Um, our meditation practice isn't gonna do a thing to stop aging and sickness, right? It may begin to illuminate something at this, this, this sort of suffering but it's said that, that our practice is, really finds its purchase here, you know, in a deeper understanding. But I'm literally asking if anybody understands this well, or well enough to kind of hazard some, some sense of what it is. Yeah. Well, the way-
8: that breaks down the whole, you know, the, the maintenance of it all. And that it's all going to break. You know, it's all going to come apart, even though I do my best. And the world is asking me to keep keep at it. And then the uh, the last one is more like the flavor of this thing I love, I'm going to lose it. So it's like the bitter of of the engagement with even the beautiful will be gone. So, so the last one is total groundlessness. Hmm. And the middle one for me was more explained as um, the struggle, hmm. struggling and efforting. Yeah. And then the last, the, but, the, but it was like, I can't dodge this arrow. I can work really hard to dodge this one for a while. And
6: then
0: this one's going to get me at some point. And I have no uh, like I'm not even
6: good enough. Does that? How does that
0: sound? That's great. Okay. <laughs> that, that's that's much clearer that's than, than than my muddied understanding.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, others have knowledge of this particular breakdown of things. You know, I think it's trying to point to something significant, but um, because you know, in the end, the the suffering again to be found in any of these is is fundamentally the same. It is the it is the rejection or the resistance against things as they are because of our um, imposition of our opinion our opinionatedness and our preferences. What
4: do you read
0: again Which part? All of it? Okay, so these are just these are my notes pulled from a bunch of different sources that it's all pervasive due to conditioning. Anxiety about things, even in good moments, due to the absence of solid ground. Sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious. It's tied to the gap between the reality of our human, of our reality and our human approach to it, which is to try to control and to possess and to own. Right? There's this kind of misalignment between our very nature and the nature of, uh, of reality. Um, because in reality things don't conform to our wishes, you know? like existential angst—a response not only to unpleasant but also to pleasant experience when there's a craving for it to continue—that um, nothing impermanent can be satisfactory. So, so you know, among my notes as I'm kind of reading about this, one of the comments was that practice, of course, doesn't prevent the first type nor even the second but it may find its application to the third, which is inherent in the other two. And these really cover an enormously wide range, you know, from really overt, obvious conditions, which are difficult, to that really subtle sense in even ordinary moments or even in happy moments. You know, that kind of quiet thrum in the background that says, should there be more? Should it be better than this, you know? The meal was great, but the service was a little slow. You know? So um, there's a clear identification of the problem at hand, which is the problem of suffering, which is followed then by, you know, the second noble truth, which is the diagnostic piece you know, for having railed a lot about, you know, the difference between a Buddhist approach and a medical model, um, this conforms really nicely to a kind of a medical formulation, if you like, which in which the first noble truth is the simple um, symptoms. Suffering is the symptom. The second is the, the, you know, the etiology, the cause, which is craving. The third is basically a prognosis, which is that this is really treatable. And then the fourth, of course, is the treatment plan. But um, the second noble truth, which is about the cause, we've talked a lot about this, which is the way that we try to hold on to things and experiences which by nature cannot be held for very long because they are so transient, and that suffering arises when the ever-changing self tries to cling to a world of experience which is in constant flux and just isn't going to cooperate with our efforts. So if the essence of life is change, the essence of grasping is to prevent it. Right? it it's kind of doomed. In the face of the experience of its own change and impermanence, dukkha is the expression of an intense desire to perpetuate the self. You know, In this respect, we can actually see the self itself as a kind of a, an effort to... to um, to build a defense against... Let me say this differently. When the self arises, because particular conditions permit it, no sooner has it arisen than its primary motivation is to preserve itself. Right? Self arises, and now self wants to aggrandize and to protect and defend itself. And suddenly we have a whole new range of motivations in our conscious and unconscious life which is the self simply trying to take command of everything for the purpose of protecting itself from the intuitive understanding of its own transience. The self really is not particularly tolerant of the knowledge of its own impermanence. And so we work really hard in our conscious and unconscious lives to try to mask that fact, you know, uh, some of you have heard me yammer about this, but one of my favorite authors um, is uh, Ernest Becker, uh, the author of The Denial of Death, which is getting some press again uh, recently. It actually won the Pulitzer Prize just after, I think it was published just after he died in 1974. And he basically recasts psychoanalytic theory into a, an existential framework in which he claims that it is not sexuality and aggression that we defend against, as Freud suggested. What we really defend against is the fear of our own mortality. That the self, which wishes to be uh, God to itself and to be able to um, create, you know, and to establish itself as significant, as meaningful, is constantly faced with threats against that very project because, because we are... Um, born into these physical bodies which will die and decay but the self can't meaningfully contemplate its own demise it exists in some respects for the purpose of trying to defend itself against those feelings of vulnerability and uh, mortality right? so the self becomes a real problem it easily, it, it's kind of um, it's like a Chinese finger trap you know Once it arises, we are really stuck with a major problem on our hands. So, once the self arises, it's accompanied by this thirst for the will to be, the will to exist, and to become more and more, to grow and to accumulate. And all of this basically leads to more cycles of suffering. So it's understood that this craving is not a universal law of nature or a cosmic law or metaphysics, but a conditioned phenomenon. And therefore, at least it's, it's kind of workable. Um, if I, I think I have a slide for something that's just kind of fun. Nope, okay, I'm going to read some of it to you. Um, This is a, it's a poem. Um, It's a recipe for unhappiness. One cup of what is, one cup of inability to accept what is, three tablespoons of complaints, one teaspoon of light whining, A quarter of a a pound of alternative scenario, preferably unobtainable, one bunch of actual reality, one pint of idealized worldview, two teaspoons of perfection, four sprigs of envy minced for garnish. So in a large bowl whisk together what is with an equal amount of the inability to accept it. Stir in complaints, let it sit until brooding and sulking set in. Add a dash of light whining, especially in the company of friends, but be careful not to overseason, or they won't hang around. In a separate bowl, add alternative scenario to actual reality from your garden and separate the leaves from the stems. Then try to reattach leaves in exact pattern that existed before separation. Pour in idealized worldview and process in a food processor using the on-off turns. When mixture is pureed, add to what it is and the inability to accept what is and blend. Add exactly two teaspoons of perfection and let stand until tears form. <laughs> Garnish and mince with envy and serve immediately. Yeah. Who
8: wrote
0: that? I have here Free Mora if
8: that's
0: a name yeah um all right so uh still another quote this is from kosho uchiyama from opening the hand of thought ordinarily we spend all our time comparing and discriminating between this and that always looking around for something good to happen to us and because of that we become restless and anxious about everything As long as we're able to imagine something better than what we have or who we are, it follows naturally that there could also be something worse. And we're constantly pursued by misgivings that something bad will happen. In other words, as long as we live by distinguishing between the better way and the worse way, we can never find absolute peace such that whatever happens is all right. When we let go of our thoughts that distinguish better from worse and instead see everything in terms of the universal self, we are able to settle upon a different attitude toward life. The attitude of magnanimous mind that whatever happens, we are living out self, which is only self. Here a truly peaceful life unfolds. So you know the third noble truth, as the prognosis, kind of suggests a little bit what li- what relief might look like. Complete relief, of course, being full awakening and nibbana. Um, so nibbana, we are r- repeatedly told, is something that we cannot conceptualize. It cannot be known, either speculative- speculatively or um, cognitively. Right, Because it is something that is um, it's beyond conditioning, nevertheless, lots of scholars have spent a lot of time trying to make sense of what's meant by it, and they may typically do this by um by really looking at the language. I actually have a, a book here um, the Psychology of Nirvana. I bought it for a dollar forty five cents <laughs> long ago, and it is you know heavily underlined i'll spare this to you but at least it's kind of useful to know something about what the tradition says about this Um, etymologically it is associated with the notion of blowing out or extinguishing you know in this case it's extinguishing the fires of craving and we're reminded by the scripture of the impossibility of describing it without personal experience but still in the literature it's described as the superlative happiness truth bliss, the unconditioned, seeing things as they are without distortions or self-projection, free of the anxieties of life, free of the three root causes of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's understood, see, unlike, say, the Freudian model, which says that the root causes of our instincts are immutable. They're our animal nature, and the best we can do is to accommodate them, right? We can adjust to them, but they're not going to leave us. It's interesting that the Buddha is recognizing very similar impulses within us, but he doesn't call them instincts and doesn't regard them as immutable. It may take a lot of work, but in principle, the very things that Freud said could not be changed and only could be accommodated um, can be overcome. And they can be overcome, in fact, uh, to the point that they are pulled up by the roots. And this is, this is what's understood, I think, by Nibbana, uh, or full awakening, which is that the root causes of greed, hatred, and delusion are pulled up by the roots such that they cannot return again. Right? Up to the point of full awakening, under the right conditions, they can always kind of sprout again. But at this point, there is nothing more to be done. You know, The work is finished. One has no further needs in this regard. Um. In some of the suttas, nibbana is described as health, which is kind of interesting. It's all, you know, there's a a whole literature that kind of puts it almost in in the terms of health versus illness. Um, In addition to being discussed as freedom, and it is understood that it is possible to have mental health of this sort despite physical affliction. And one of the bits of speculation that I've read a little bit about was. did the, you know, I think the Buddha may have died of dysentery, something like this. And the question is, um, did he feel pain? You know, how did he deal with being a little annoyed that somebody fed him some tainted meat? And and I have, I have no idea how to answer this. It would be lovely to think that he was beyond all pain. But, you know, dukkha dukkha, right? If he was doubled over in, in gut pain because of dysentery, I assume he he suffered that moderately humanly, right? I don't know. (coughs) And the Bana is regarded not, frankly, as a natural state. Sadly, our natural state seems to be more screwed up, a little bit more defiled. Rather, it's understood that this level of, of awakening is actually a significant achievement and is, it is a product of great, great effort, right? Bummer,
2: <laughs> you know?
0: I mean, there's certainly a lot of accounts of people having awakening experiences spontaneously. You know, people who don't meditate or practice, but you know, there's this kind of perennial wisdom that you can find in a lot of different literature where people suddenly have some sort of a realization. Uh, often without a practice, there's no context for it. And I suspect there are a whole load of people who are walking the earth who have had spontaneous experiences of deep insight and awakening, but didn't know what happened, didn't know who to talk to, were embarrassed by the whole thing, and therefore never had a way to kind of consolidate and make sense of the whole experience. So it gets set aside as some kind of an anomaly. And maybe, maybe some of you in here have had such an experience. One of the values of practice here is that it has a way of contextualizing these kind of spontaneous experiences that people can have. And of course, try to create the conditions in which they might arise. Um, One of the values of practice in such instances is that without training, and without good guidance of a teacher we may have some kind of moments of deep insight or of awakening and then grab onto them i've got it this is it you know this is enlightenment and indeed i think there uh, the world is rife with any number of meditation or spiritual teachers who have had their enlightenment and then hang out a shingle you know and having had this experience this becomes the evidence of their authority to begin to teach. And sometimes, and I've met some of these people, you know, it kind of smells from a hundred paces. You know? And the literature and 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 the tradition kind of warn about the dangers of attaching to any particular experience. You know, this isn't quite awakening, but you know, I had been on retreat once and I, I fell into a state that I think it was a jhana, you know, it was an absorption state. And I, I kind of stumbled into it quite by accident. And I can only describe it as having been um, still like I had never known. I mean, it was just like, like, like the water was as still as glass. And it was really delicious. And I loved it. And then this was, it was actually pretty instructive because at some time I was really enjoying this and then I, I had the thought, I really like this. And
1: poof, <laughs> it vanished,
0: right? And I was upset because that I wanted it, right? It was deep pleasure and I wanted more of it. And so for the longest time, my practice seemed to be directed at trying to get it back, you know, which is ridiculous, you know? But I didn't know. It was actually a cause of more suffering because now I believe that that was the high watermark of my practice. And that's where I needed to aspire to return. And what I missed was that there was some real learning, which only became clear to me later, which is that I saw with exquisite clarity how something that was really pleasurable gave rise to grasping. And as soon as that grasping appeared, suffering arose because of my effort to nail it down, you know, and I could see it in the most schematic and plain way possible, but for the longest time, it was about trying to restore that experience, you know. And maybe that was something that, you know, I had to go through. I don't know. Um, Ajahn um, Brahm was a student of Ajahn Chahs, and he described well. You know, he has this great story. He said that, well, first of all, when he was young he was in college and he was reading about Buddhism and he, you know, he was sitting in a party and he thought, well, this is really a waste of time, this stupid party, look at us all just getting drunk. And he resolved to go back to his dorm room and meditate and not leave until he was enlightened, right? 40 minutes later, he was back at the party,
1: <laughs> you know?
0: But he wound up ordaining. And um, I think probably he had been in a monastery in Thailand when Ajahn Chah wanted to set up shop in some other country. And so he decided that before they actually picked up and moved, he was going to give it his all. He was going to really practice very hard. And he practiced um, you know, through the night, and then he had some kind of you know, deep experience. you know, and, uh, and it lasted for hours. And he just sat and he meditated and didn't sleep, and he was just delighted because now he had it. You know this was the reward soon after that they were all um, lined up for a meal and they were eating the the, the food that uh, had been offered to them on their alms rounds right and he said that um, there was two pots of food that people had given them one of them was of this delicious lamb stew and the other was this kind of fish stew which was cheap and disgusting and was what uh, poor people were able to offer. And he was second in line, and the abbot helped himself to the lamb stew. And then before uh, Ajahn um, Brahm could get there, he took the lamb stew and he dumped it into the fish stew and stirred it all up and made some joke like, it all comes out the same in the end. And Ajahn Brahm flipped out You know, he so wanted that good stew and he just he lost his temper. What was interesting about this was that he realized that that experience that he'd had of this great awakening, gone, absolutely gone. That when the conditions arose, he was right back there in his suffering. And it was useful because it was humbling, you know. It helped him to realize that one can't that there, the danger of attaching to any particular experience and holding on to it as evidence of any kind of attainment, you know? Because there is no permanent place to stand. And so it knocked him back on his on his ass, really. How did he get there? I really can't remember how I got there.
4: You're talking about oh, oh yeah. You're talking
0: yeah. about nirvana. Yeah. Oh nirvana, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Nibana, right. Right, thank you.
1: <laughs> thank
0: you so much. Um nirvana. So a little bit more on this. That it has a way, you know, the the, the term chita cheetah are people familiar with this, the the Pali term, that I Variously translates as mind, but it might, you know, it doesn't align perfectly with mind. It seems to be like mind and personality, you know, pretty conventionally. Nibbana is understood to transform citta, um, a state of mind, to, to, be, to turn toward a state of mind of complete freedom. And by the way, just a word on freedom, you know, we, we often misunderstand this because we think of freedom as typically the freedom to be able to do as we please. And of course, that's not what, meant, what is meant by this. It's always meant as the freedom from, right? freedom from affliction. It's a state of complete fulfillment in which all needs and emotions are gone, of calm contentment and complete intellectual insight. Dependence, insecurity, and defense have disappeared. And ethical behavior is automatic unquestioned and automatic. Um, Yeah. So, you know, we can fantasize about this, we can imagine it, but it's not something that we can grasp intellectually. Um, So another fellow who I've read multiple times, it's completely fallen apart. This is a book called The Psychological Attitude of Early Buddhist Philosophy by Angarika Govinda, who was a German national, became a Tibetan monk. And man, this guy had a lot of time on his hands, because he spins out these really elaborate models. But it's actually quite clarifying of the path. But one of the things that he had said is that we can, um, we can think of wisdom or understanding or knowledge as having <coughs> having three levels. The first is the level of basically opinion, uh, which is personal and subjective. right? and we carry around all of that. The second, he said, is more rational and objective, and this is the kind of knowledge that's associated maybe more with the scientific process and with reasoning, you know? It's tend to be um, non-subjective. But the third level of understanding, he is saying, is what he called the intuitive level, which is free of dualism or emphasis on either subject or object but is known in the complete union of the knower and the known. So this is kind of interesting, because we can read all about this stuff and we can argue ourselves into some position. But really what it's pointing to is that the um, the wisdom that we gain is not something that can be held out, you know, as a statement or a conclusion. You know, the, the wisdom that is gained in this practice isn't like syllogistic logic, you know, or that two plus two equals four because even though that might be an indisputable fact, it's still possible to to get contentious with it and say, no, it's not. You know, you'd be wrong. Anyway, the point here is that what he's saying is that this level of wisdom and understanding is something that is beyond dispute because it is not, uh, it is, it's embodied, right? Uh, He said that wisdom, to talk about wisdom in the, As something abstract is like talking about health in the abstract. We can talk about health as a concept, but it really only has meaning when we understand health as a condition of a particular body. And then it begins to have meaning. In the same way, he is saying that wisdom only truly has meaning as the condition of our being. So it's not like, you know, spinning off wise, you know, aphorisms, of course. But it's that intuitive, embodied understanding of exactly what, what the moment requires, you know, what is actually happening here and now that's not separate from us, and it can come and go, not an all-time achievement. But I think about you sitting with your, um, your dog who's been attacked, and wisdom was present. you know it, it just it didn't even need to be summoned. This is the kind of knowledge and understanding that is transformative, you know? when this sort of wisdom becomes available to us, it changes us. It's not something that we need to rehearse or write down in our notebooks. Rather, it's a little bit like at at our DNA level or a molecular level, some kind of a shift occurs. And, And there are changes of this sort that are more or less irreversible. Even if conditions come up and we find ourselves back in some kind of a shitstorm, there's at least the understanding that this is a state of mind, it's not the truth of the matter, and we can't undo the kinds of things that we have discovered. So, you know, in the in the Buddhist uh, view of levels of awakening, you know, the first is what's called stream entry, which is you get your first taste of awakening. I think the second is the the um, the once returner. Uh, the third level of awakening is the is basically the one who never returns, and basically it's a level of awakening or understanding that is irreversible and there's no turning back at that point.
2: You know, there's
0: no returning to the comforts of our delusional belief system. So you know, this is an interesting notion of what wisdom actually looks like and what awakening looks like. Not something that can be conceived but rather something that, um, in which the, the subject, the knower, and the object, the known, um, become um, indistinguishable, um, that knowing happens, right? You, you may be familiar with this teaching of the Buddha who, who's, you know, who summarized uh, the awakened state by saying, in the hearing, there is only what is heard, in the seeing, there's only what is seen, in the smelling, there's only what is smelt. right? And so on. So this is interesting. These experiences arise, but they're not arising to someone they're just known in and of themselves. There's a complete identity of the knower and the object. You know? And you may well have had simple experiences like this in small ways, right? When there's some kind of deep absorption and we're no longer conscious of ourselves, but we are so engrossed in the very thing that we're doing. And there's great rest in this, right? There's great relief and, and, and pleasure in those experiences, um, sometimes described as the experience of flow, you know, uh, where the doer, the observer, doesn't seem to be anywhere to be seen, but there is complete absorption and observation happening. So this kind of knowledge is beyond debate. This understanding is beyond negation, and it requires the training of the mind, um, also sometimes called bodhi, another word for the same thing, um, I also have read where someone someone said that spiritual problems of life at this stage are not resolved you just move beyond them which is interesting um, okay this is kind of a natural stopping place for me so so what so, comments, thoughts, questions? David.
7: Sort of maybe non the discussion of nirvana, but um, I saw Michael Collins' book, How to Change Your Mind in the Library. And I remember the discussion. Anyway, I mean, he talks about uh, parallels between altered states of consciousness and experience through psychedelics. Do you have any interest in either like parallels in terms of looking for neural, neural <coughs> in these experiences or just more broadly in terms of, I don't know, self-growth exploration or as a clinician in terms of the promise, you know for therapeutics based on this? Well,
0: let me take the easy one first. As a clinician, absolutely. Okay. And I've actually, um, it's dicey because most of these things are illegal but I have raised with uh, some individuals the prospect of their having some kind of an experience with a a plant medicine or with a psychedelic, right? And some of them have followed through and done it. Um, In some cases with with some genuine benefit and others didn't accomplish a thing. I think it has therapeutic potential for sure. You know, I mentioned in my own experience that I felt I'd been given some kind of an insight earlier on, and it turned out in the long run, I think, to be a bit of a hindrance. But at the time, it seemed to say to me, awakening is actually a possibility because I had a taste of this, I don't know, non-dual state. Um, Personally, I don't think of this, and this is just really personally, I don't see this as a path. I think it might be a useful reminder now and then, but it is not a path because it is too uh, transitory. I think we kind of have to do the the woodshed, you know? We have to do the work of training the mind. And I don't think that medicines are uh, a shortcut because they don't train the mind. They may provide a brief insight. There was an article of Tricycle Magazine from 1995 that took up this issue and it was, you know, it was pretty interesting. Uh, because they interviewed a whole lot of people about it. And it won't surprise you that a great many Buddhist teachers have had experience with psychedelics. You know? And they are not unanimous in their appraisal of the benefit, which is also pretty interesting. The most negative about this was Michelle McDonald. But others were sort of agnostic, and they actually regarded it as something that could be beneficial under certain circumstances and for a great many people, it was an early boost in their um, spiritual careers if you will you know so I, you know I, I have no answers on this I just really only know my own experience I, I don't I, I have a number of colleagues who are kind of serious psychonauts now they're very earnest <coughs> They get together in a kind of a systematic and planful way and will use medicines almost in a retreat fashion, which is to say in silence, in sitting, walking, sitting, walking, which I think is a little crazy because if you're tripping, it doesn't really matter what your posture is,
1: <laughs>
0: you know? And I think for them, they actually think there might be some wisdom yet to be discovered. I'm, I'm skeptical of that, so I don't regard this as a, as a substitute for... Uh, for doing the hard work of training our minds. But I am sure some of you have your own opinions on the matter and your own experience with this. I don't know if you're at ease sharing.
2: Um,
3: Yeah. Yeah, I had an experience, and it was long ago, my first year of college. And uh, I would say it was formative in the way that my life has unfolded since then. Um, it's not something that I tried to repeat necessarily. It was kind of a one-off experience, but quite powerful. And uh, just last week, I think I saw a, a quote from uh, maybe Albert Huxley, who said that uh, psychedelics are a door, not a path. But that was the way he put it.
0: That's really well put. Yeah. That's what I was trying to express, I think, for myself. Yeah. Martin?
3: found and uh and uh yeah this is the closest thing I can imagine to being awaiting
0: that I have in my life. Do you see a a, a lasting legacy?
3: Hmm. It, it only, I, I mean, I, I took this, uh, this substance a few times in these years and only I think once.
0: Well, I have it in mind that somehow the first experience when it remains novel is the most powerful. In the same way the first retreat seemed to be the most transformative. After that it's useful and familiar, but maybe yeah. isn't breaking the same the first, ground. Uh, it wasn't the first. Interesting. Anybody else have anything they want to share about? Yeah.
6: Ayahuasca? I-